It's, uh, it's early morning here at the camp and we're just packing up to get ready to go on the day's hunt. We're, we're hunting buffalo. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Pete has just spotted a bull in the truck, so we've gone on foot now and we're making our way towards it. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and little audio surprises we find all over the world. On the air, on the internet, at audio festivals and conferences, in our imaginations, and in our mailboxes. Honey, we hear it all. And then we take the best of it and bring it to you every week on this very radio show, ReSound. Hang on, the bull is about 70 yards ahead of us. I have to be very quiet he may hear us. This year, an unusual number of submissions to our annual documentary competition had to do with hunting. Now, why is this the most popular topic of the year? Well, your guess is as good as mine. But it's clear that hunting is on a lot of people's minds, and their minds are not made up about it. From a new moose hunter in Maine to an ambivalent stalker of water buffalo in northern Australia, hunting stirs up a lot of emotion and confusion. So today, we look at the art of the chase, the thrill of the kill, and all the messy stuff in between. We'll hear what happens when hunting meets poetry, when hunting meets love, and when the desire to kill an animal turns into the desire to kill your companion. Stay tuned. Moose hunting in Maine is a very popular sport. The problem is there are far fewer permits than there are hunters. So each year, the permits go out to lottery winners, and most hunters can't snag one even once in their lifetime. Well, this is the story of one woman who, against all odds, drew a permit on her first try. Her excitement was intense, and so were the results. Here to tell the tale is producer Jamie Younger with Diana goddess of the moose hunt. It's a warm fall afternoon in northern Maine. Steve Gilbert and Diana Grew have the windows rolled down in Steve's Ford pickup. Poor young girl, she's getting that moose tomorrow. Steve's driving, and Diana is, quite literally, riding shotgun. Tomorrow at daybreak, Diana will embark on her first ever moose hunt. Try not to think about overanalyzing tomorrow. Before the sun goes down, Diana hopes to get in some target practice. All right, you are ready to shoot. I want you to shoot as close to that <clears throat> X as you can. Diana's been hunting for two years, but never for big game. Breathe in, breathe out. Hold She's never breath. used a rifle, and certainly never put her eye up to a scope. Diana misses the target entirely on her first try. She tries again. The second time, she hits the bullseye. Steve says that'll do it. I can't shoot again? Nope. To practice? Nope. Oh, jeepers creepers. Well, pretty please. Diana thinks two practice shots is not nearly enough, but Steve is satisfied and says it's time to go back to the hotel. For Diana, hunting is somewhat romantic. Being out in the fresh air all day, spending time with friends, 
and experiencing the glory of man and nature, like the hunting she witnessed as a kid. My uncle on my mother's side had a hunting camp kind of lodge, and all the hunters would come in, and you know I got to see that a couple times, and it was just the camaraderie, all the hunters joking and laughing, and you know having a good time telling hunting stories from way back when, and they were or just being there. I just love listening to stories, and I'm kind of shy, so I always sit in the back, I always sit in the corner, but I love to watch and listen. So it was great, but I would never ask, hey, you know, I want to go hunting so bad, but I would never ask because I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to impose. A few months ago, Diana applied for a moose hunting permit, and she got it. It's a big deal to be picked. Only 5% of some 60,000 applicants every year are chosen. Being selected is surprising for anyone, but it was especially so for Diana. Because this is the first year I put in for it, and I wasn't expecting at all wasn't prepared. What am I going to do? I don't have a chest freezer. I don't have a rifle. I'm really green. Diana knew right away that she needed to find a seasoned hunter to show her the ropes. That's when Steve came on the scene. And how I met Diana, I met her through my sister. She had a moose permit and nobody to go with, so my sister heard about it and says, well, I know somebody to go with you. When Steve agreed to help her out, Diana was psyched. Go scouting, walk in the woods. Steve had been on almost 30 moose hunts. Diana imagined the big week. Maybe in a tree stand or, you know, ground stalking where you move, like, one move every other minute. You know, you're very, very quiet. For Steve, hunting amounts to driving around. He essentially counts on a fortunate moment when his truck crosses paths with the moose. It's almost like playing a slot machine. You just got to stay with it until the thing pays. Moose hunting is the same thing. You know, people tell you all the time, ride, look around, ride. That's all you do. There's no big secret to it. Over the course of this one week, Diana went from dreaming about learning how to hunt out in the woods to the distressing reality of driving for hours with a man she hardly knew. (laughs) Steve and Diana share a hotel room with two queen-size beds. Diana joins in the Chinese takeout they order, and jokes with Steve's buddies from down the hall. But silently, Diana is disappointed they aren't tent camping. At 11, they shut out the light. Just four hours later, Diana gets dressed in full camouflage and pulls back her long blonde hair. Steve slips on tennis shoes. They grab their gear and load in the truck. For three solid hours, Steve drives slowly down unmarked logging roads. Diana is antsy and wants to get out of the truck. She resorts to asking if she can at least sit on the tailgate. Steve says, nope. Diana sucks in her cheeks and stares intently at the windshield. At 7.30, just as the sun starts to burn away the morning dew, Steve gives in and lets her out. Get the hell out. Oh, the door hit you in the ass. She's bound determined. She's gonna... There's a bull moose right there. There's a moose right in the road. A quarter of a mile down the road stands the largest, most ill-proportioned animal you've ever seen. There's a moose right in the road. Get in the front. Get in the front. We're going down there. Okay. Get, the Get yourself ready. Okay. What's your clip Steve starts you driving toward it. 
at nearly 40 miles an hour. I understood that he has been on many, many moose hunts and knew more than I did. I'll show you how to hunt moose. But it felt wrong. It was my hunt, and he was ruining it. You know, I'm not going to change my ways because I'm going to do it the way that I know how to do it the best. I'm not going to change my ways now. That's Steve. He's calling the moose with his hands and with his voice because the moose is running away. He's gone now. You're not even running. He's gone now. Because you're hauling ass with the truck. Too late now. That one's gone. Steve and Diana pile back in the truck. The two feet between them starts to feel, well, let's just say a little tight. Another hour rolls on. And then, out in the middle of the road, they spot another moose. There's a bull right there. I'm going to go slow. This time, Steve goes slow, and the moose doesn't run away. But Diana messes up. She jams the gun. It's, the gun is not even loaded. Jammed it all to hell because you didn't follow it through, like I said. She thought she'd make too much noise by pulling the bolt back far enough so once she let it go that it would drive the bullet in. You know, she wanted to do it easy. Yep. The second moose, that one gets away too. We lost him. Over the course of the evening, Steve tells friends and strangers that Diana got buck fever. That's hunter's talk for freezing up at the sight of an animal. He even tells a gas station attendant how Diana missed her once-in-a-lifetime shot. At the hotel later that night, Steve says in a roundabout way that Diana is questioning his authority. Well, I wanted to tell her that I knew what the hell I'm doing. You know. Around 9 o'clock, Diana loses it. She starts to yell at Steve. People down the hall can definitely hear each and every word. She tells him in no uncertain terms to cut it out, stop trying to embarrass her, with that buck fever comment. Steve says nothing. In the middle of the night, while Steve's snoring, Diana steals to the bathroom to weep. <laughs> Steve and Diana drive around all day Wednesday. No moose. Driving, driving, driving. They drive around all day Thursday. No moose. For Diana, each passing hour in the truck seems like eternity. Just so much pent-up, pissed off, being trapped in that vehicle for all those hours, sitting there doing something that I don't want to do, I don't want to hunt like that. After nearly 70 keyed-up hours in the truck together, Diana spotted it. I had it ready. All good. Had the bullet in the chamber. You know, everything was all set. And I've got it. He's totally broadside. And I just shoot. The moose weighed close to 650 pounds. But the hunt, the experience, wasn't anything like Diana had imagined. No woods, no camaraderie, no glorious story to tell. Nothing like what she had remembered from childhood in her uncle's old hunting lodge. By the end, all Diana felt was relief. I was like, thank God this is over. Diana, Goddess of the Moose Hunt, was produced by Jamie Younger while attending the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Now, 
Rotate the Earth about 10,000 miles, and you get to the locale of our next hunt, northern Australia. There, in the 19th century, the water buffalo was introduced to the land, and soon the giant beasts came to define the wild country of the region, even though, as we're about to hear, tracking one down can be next to impossible. Producer John Connell joined a group of hunters on their trek and then made this meditative and beautifully crafted documentary that uncovers the complexities and ambiguities of the hunt. It's called, simply, On Hunting. Sunlight, like an old projector, flickers through the trees. Scrub bush, red dust. I could hear them in the distance. They had come long ago across the Arafura. Brave new workers to feed and clothe, to tame the wild never-never. Never say never, but the colonies failed. Wanderers now, despised, hunted, the gypsies of the north. whirlwind blows through the camp. It rattles the tents on corrugated sheets. Breakfast. The half-forgotten smell of blood as wet livers kiss the pan. The men rise. Already, they are talking of hunting. To me, it's hunters to seek, find, pursue, lie in wait, or kill the definition. And um, hunting's not just about killing and, and leaving. Hunting's more about getting to know the animal. You, you, you have a great respect for them, and a love for, for the animal, though you might have killed it. You take it home and um, you think kindly of it. It's not just a, a murder taking place. Killing an animal is, I always relate to it for a few seconds or a few minutes in a, in, in a, in a slight sad way, because you actually have taken something. To take the life of anything is, is, is the ultimate thing to do. You, you, you know, you, you've taken the life, you have to realize that life is the most precious thing anybody or anything has. And, and then you have to take a little bit of time off and sit and relate on what had happened and, and, and have respect for the dead beast. 
Hang on, Lane, I'll give you a hand with that. It's, uh, it's early morning here at the camp and we're just packing up to get ready to go on the day's hunt. We're, we're hunting buffalo. Alright. We take the dirt road out of camp, past termite mounds and unloved roads. I ride up front with our barefoot tracker, Pete. So, um, uh, how long have you been doing this then, Pete? Twelve years here yeah. in the Territory. Um, I was brought up hunting, you know, I'm an old man, ever since I was four years old I was shooting rabbits and 22s and that sort of thing, yeah. over in New Zealand. And, uh, every day after school, every weekend, just solid hunting. And when I was about 10, I started, my dad was a taxidermist, and I, uh, I used to go out and help him skin. When I was about 13, started high school, I started doing taxidermy with him. Yeah. And uh, I did three years of solid taxidermy with him after school and on the weekends and that sort of thing. And then I left school pretty young. And then when I was 15, I came straight over here, pretty much run this whole place for the last seven years, doing four months solid now. Yeah. Every year, so it's pretty good. And does it does it get lonely out here then? No, no, not really. Every week you're getting another set of clients. I do miss, you know, going out and layering up with the lads sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, or just having companionship at my own age, but yeah, I got over that about six years ago, you know. Sort of. <laughs> and have you ever been charged? Then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shit, yeah. yeah. Is, is that scary or...? It is always intimidating. Every time you've got a buffalo coming at you, it's like an enemy driving a car at you, you know. That's like the size of it, you know. It's this huge big thing thundering through. And if there's a tree in the way, it just knocks the tree out of the way. The first couple of times you see it, it seems like lightning. That bull goes from 50 yards to 5 yards in a matter of seconds, you know. It's like one, two, three, and he's right there. You know, it was like, oh, no, charging, you know, run away sort of thing. But turning your back on a charging animal is the worst thing you could possibly do. The best thing you can do is plant your feet train the gun on them and just keep your eyes locked on the animal and then if it's serious enough you know give it a shot in the chest if it's getting a little closer just rip a shot down the side and I'll knock his wheels out from underneath them because I, I don't like to shoot my clients animals I don't even like to fire my gun you know Just push this out to the bloody end of the log before you jump in. Hold on. The boat glides along the waterway. There are waterfowl here, crying and singing. Images on the mind.
a wallaby considers us from the shoreline. The men grow excited and take photos. My first rule, Len triumphs. But they won't kill it. They're after bigger game. Actually following us. If you stop now, if you take off again, you'll see they'll follow us. Oh, there were these birds there. We've just crossed the Gangan and we're uh, getting into the second vehicle now and we're going to try and see if we can find some buffalo. We drive on, the bush closing in around us. Gum trees give way to ferns and palms. The ruin of an abandoned truck now beaten by rust. What do these creatures look like? When you, when you just look at animals, it's one thing. When you hunt, you have to look for spoor, watch the wind, watch the other creatures, birds. They all indicate to you what is actually happening around you. They're all connected. If you're in the African bush and an oxpecker flies out, you're right near a buffalo herd because they feed on the buffalo. So when you hear an oxpecker, you know you're near a buffalo. So all these things are connected. You get to know more and more about this person, the animal that you're hunting. If you're a tourist and you have no um, hunting background, if you drove past an impala herd, you'd see buck. If you're a hunter and you're going to hunt an impala, you'd, you'd actually know which is the right ram to shoot, that that's a breeding herd. That's a bachelor herd, that's a middle-aged male, that's a real old male, and that's a rejected from the herd male. And then you would go out of your way to shoot the old animal that has no further breeding use. And, and I think that's, that's a better way of doing it, to know each animal. You know? There's something else as a bull. We see our first bull, broad, black. Leaving the guns in the truck, the men take only their cameras. Hunting images, stalking sound. He's too young to be a trophy. They want only the biggest horn. We watch him, our eyes meet. Does he register me?
So he's, he's listening to his kinking as he is forward as well. And that isn't his total width. It's nice to see a bull. Yeah, yeah. You just see the difference between a bull and a cow. But that's proper behaviour of it, you know. The whole, so, the whole mannerism, eh? Yeah. They're just not stupid, you know. They keep their eye on it and, you know, they move away. They don't just stand there like those young bulls, you no, know. They, they won't just go back to feeding and piss around while you... No, no, that acts weird, you know. He's so, circled and he's yeah. turned again. He didn't, he didn't run away yet. No. But he's, like, watching us all the time. Yeah. They need to smell you to run off, you know, because they're inquisitive mm. and they don't really have any predators, so they've got no real reason to be afraid. Yeah. So. Right, let's carry on. No, that's very lucky. I might as well ride up here with you, Jeff. Jeff. Pete's father, a New Zealander, is a quiet man, his face thin with a yard brush hard stubble. He watches the bush pass by. He talks and jokes occasionally, his stories centered on his passion. But everybody hunts for different reasons. I mean, some people hunt because they want to get a trophy. They might love red stags and red deer and they, they want a, a beautiful big set of red stag antlers and that's their mission in life, is to go out and look at lots of stags and pass up a lot of small ones and uh, then ultimately get a big one. For me, for example, the odd animal, a couple of animals I've got in my house, like I've got a little grey diker mounted as a shoulder mount. Every time I walk past, oh, worse, even now, a few years later, still just think of Nineveh and and the Bushmen and the wonderful experience I had over there of uh, hunting and, and seeing a unique part of the world and yeah it's it's just nice nice fond memories really for example I drove a Land Rover when I was about 20 I drove a Land Rover from England down through Africa for a year with about seven or eight other young guys you know but I have very few memories of it now I suppose it's so long ago but every time I look at that little grey diker on in my lounge I have still had very strong memories of my time I spent in Namibia so it gives me pleasure to surround myself with memories of things that I've actually I, I, my house is full of things that I've actually experienced and, and that not just having just bought it walked into a shop one day and bought a rug for the floor and a picture for the wall and a vase because it, it's the latest vase and and fill my house with junk like that, I've actually got a house full of memories. At midday we rest. The Eskies' cool drinks a welcome treat. The men lounge in the shade of the truck. We talk of guns, hunting, and little else. Can you tell me about one of your most fondest memories of a hunt? What was the animal and why is it a good memory for the hunt? I can actually tell you about 
an animal I hunted was a big eland bull. It was uh, the biggest animal shot in that area for years. And it was also, although it was the best trophy I ever got, it was also the saddest animal I have. And you asked about it, the biggest moment. That probably is the moment that's the biggest to me because it made me really realize that to be a hunter, you have to really put a lot of energy into it and keep, try to be good at it, be a good shot, know where to shoot the animal so that the animal doesn't have any suffering. must be an instantaneous kill. And that poor animal, I'd gone wrong a little bit and it had taken two or three shots. And it's one of my fondest memories because although it was extremely sad, it did a lot of good for me because in the years ahead, I made sure that I did it better and better and better so that there would be very little suffering, if any. It was a turning point in my hunting career. Yeah. It's not just to kill, it's to yeah. do it well and selectively and really be good at it, you know. These, the, the, the high-powered weapons we use can cover huge distances, hundreds of meters. And, and I've, I've, I've seen people say that uh, I missed the animal. I was too far, I missed the animal, missed the animal. Only to find a carcass the next day, dead up on a mountain, another one shot through the bum, another one shot in the stomach, they die five days later. So in the hands of a person like that, it's a terribly destructive thing. Do you see it as a kill or do you see it as murder? Is it is it something else? It's a very difficult question to answer and we probably don't have that much time to really go into it in depth. I love the animals I hunt. I love the outdoors. I love the bird life. I spend more time looking at animals than I ever do of killing them. I love to have them around me. The, the sheer beauty and the respect and people would say, well, you want to kill it so you can own it because of the beauty. Well, I really don't think that's the case at all. I... I hunt because of all the other, that, that's one tiny dimension of it, I hunt because of all the other aspects of the outdoors and the, the pursuit and the comradeship. But I, the, the, the killing thing, um, I get no thrill out of it at all. I don't look at that animal on the ground and, and get a real buzz out of the fact that I've just killed something. Matter of fact, I, I just hope that I've killed it very quickly and cleanly and, um, and just simply treat it as... Possibly a, a hunter might have treat, treated it years ago, a, a million years ago or 10,000 years ago as the, the thrill of having some nice meat to take home and appreciate. And I love cooking, that's the other aspect of course. I love cooking game and I, I, I cook a fair percentage of the meals at home in the evening. That's again another sort of little offshoot of why I hunt too is the fact that I enjoy the cooking aspect of it. And We've just come onto a huge dried out floodplain and it's just bare earth as far as the eye can see. Um, 
I don't know if you can hear this, but... That's the dust. Um, Pete has brought us here because this is where a lot of the, the killing happened a few weeks ago. Um, the killing, or I suppose I should say the culling. The government rangers were tasked with the job of dispatching uh, of 1,000 buffalo from this area. And so they came out with a helicopter and shot 1,000 buffalo, mothers and calves and young bulls. And this area is just littered with bodies. Um, and the bodies are all broken and bent. And the maggots have come and gone and they're basically just black, broken things covered in, in white bird dung. Um, it's, it's quite a disturbing image. Um, the other men are ahead of me now. They're having a look at one of the bulls. So... Maybe we'll go over and have a look. The men pick through the remains. Len takes a number of horns, saying he will use them as door handles. We put them on the back of the truck and leave this place. I begin to question my reasons for being here. I'm a long way from my Sydney terrace. I pray to the gods of sound. I need material. I need great white hunters. I need blood. Pete has just spotted the bull from the truck, so we've gone on foot now and we're making our way towards it. We're in a cycad forest, so there isn't much cover. And the bull is about... Hang on, the bull is about 70 yards ahead of us. I have to be very quiet, because he may hear us. He's got nice tips. The bulges in the base are really good, so he's mature. But he just hasn't seen how wide he is. He's going for water, so we'll just watch him. A wind blows through the trees. The bull is old, black, turning grey his hips thin. He approaches the water gently and begins to drink. Go 
Now he's going to come down the water, stand there right in front of us. I just need him to pull his head up so I can have a look at him. But um, he's pretty good looking rough on it. He could be a little bigger in the process, but he's got the width and he's got reasonable tips on him, but he's a good respectable boy. He's old. He's just he could be a little bigger in his bases. He's probably only like seven pounds. So. Well, we'll let him come into the water and have a good look at him bodily. Wind's a bit bad. We'll see if we can cross this water here. Cut on the side of it. Getting back in back drafts behind us. This one's not that good. You can just see his back coming down. The shark. The bull's agitated surprise to find death inside of him. He struggles to get out. His feet give way. He surfaces again and water jets out his nostrils. He doesn't bellow. He's dead. Yeah. And he can't hold his breath, eh? Good shot, mate. I, I actually didn't want to hit him that well. I wanted him to just jump out. Yeah. Out <laughs> the like water. Yeah. Up that far side. What, what hey? I think he's too old. Man. What did that feel like? feel like? Um, until he's dead, it's very exciting. Because mm. your nerves are really... But it's um, very satisfying. Good shot like at it. He was standing after the bang, he was dead. He was. Yeah. Eh? It's good when it happens fast. You shoot him in the right place and it's only seconds like that, you know? Yeah. But it'd take 20 seconds to get around here and it's all over. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, what are yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Now this, um, I loaded again, I'm sure, eh? Yeah. That, that, you do, that you do without thinking. Right, the gun's safe. Now we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Yes, Cool, isn't it? <coughs> Clean shot. <laughs> Where'd you nail him, mate? Just through the yeah, height. Through the heart. Nice. But it broke both his legs, I think. Right. Yeah. That's why he went right down, you know, couldn't. Mm. Just walk. Yeah. 
Oh, he's going around behind the stump here. Let him go. Okay. Huge, aren't they? It's all as less sucker. Oh, what a fucking good set of horns, too. Oh, he's been in a few scraps, this guy. You can see his whole body is just worn out. Yeah. More than me. Good job. Now it's a bloody beautiful bull, yeah, for sure. You want to sit between the horns, right there a little, and it'll put your son in the face just a little more. Len straddles the beast's neck, holding its horns. Prop his horns forward as far as he okay. can, so he stands upright. How appropriate, a water buffalo in the water. Yeah, hey. Hey, that's yeah, it's meant to be done. Skinny old fucking stuff. Oh, that's good. So what do you feel for, for the bull now? I feel I feel sorry for him, but he was finished already. Hmm. And he'll live forever now in my house. He'll be seen by lots of people who come visit. So he becomes immortal. What's the cable, eh? The photo shoot complete. We place a chain around the bull's head, pulling him onto dry land. The trophy quickly becomes a carcass. Can you talk me through what you're doing there, please? What do you say? But uh, yeah, so at the moment, just cutting our way through the uh, the back of the neck, and uh, the skin's about an inch thick, so it takes a bit of hacking. And this boy is uh, old and wrinkly, so that's, a, that's born there now. Ah, uh, that's the vertebrae. Oh right, okay. that's the gap in the vertebrae. That's the vertebrae free. No, it's just another little because we got the jugular, esophagus. Job best done with the mouth closed. Well, I guess we'll be having buffalo stew tonight. Set. Beautiful. The head is removed. Let's go with it, Jeff. Get him out of the van. A small trail of blood follows the men as they carry it towards the truck, placing it in the center of a spare tire. Its jaw limply gaping, its black eyes open. I notice grains of brown sand sitting in one, like a sugary tear. He'd never seen a man before.
We return and start to skin the bull. The hide is thick, with coarse hair. Underneath, a white membrane and some still twitching muscles. The men are happy. They review and critique the kill. You're allowed to eat your sandwich now, Lynn? No, I'm going to leave it now. I'm a bit off meat now. What is it when you're shooting an animal then? What's the, it's, what's you the must always look through the animal. The line the bullet's going to take, because you hit the one shoulder, you hit the heart, you break the other shoulder. You don't want to hit the shoulder and go into the stomach. Yep. No, you don't want to, you, you want to go right through all the vitals, always going through the vitals of an animal. And when you're looking at an animal, you're not looking at the whole animal. If you're looking through the crosshairs, you're looking at a, a spot the size of your hand, you know, exactly where that bullet's going to hit. You don't look at the whole animal, the spot you're looking at it is a two-inch square in the grand scheme of things, so that's all you're focusing on. It's like anything. You can take in a panoramic view with your eyes or you can focus on a leaf, you know, and that focusing on a leaf is exactly what you're doing through the scope to make sure that that bullet hits exactly where you're looking. And do you, do you think about the bullet or do you think about the... What? Is it, a, is it a multitude of things then when you're I think through the animal. I think I'm going to hit it there. Yeah. It's going to come out the other side there. And you're watching, I've hit three things that will kill it, you know? And you're watching the bullet as well. You're watching, when you put that crosshairs on it, you pull the trigger and you want to watch that bullet hit the animal. You know, if you're, if you're intent on watching that bullet strike the animal, you then you're it. not blinking or you're not flinching. You'll actually see it hit because it happens so fast, it happens before the recoil. You know, it's just, you'll actually catch it in that moment before that gun throws up in front of you. And watching the bullet strike the animal is one of the most important things. If you don't see the bullet strike, then a lot of the times you've blinked or you've jerked your head and, you know, that's that's bad practice. The bullet's there before you hear the gun. Yeah, for sure. That's how fast it happens. Righto, chuck that in the back, mate. <laughs> it takes three men to lift the skin onto the truck, the animal now reduced to the contents of our vehicle. Pete says the carcass, what's left of it, will be gone within a week. The men have worked quick, and there is little blood. The generator hums. We return to camp, triumphant. The men begin to prepare the head and hide at Pete's workshop. The workshop, a lean-to, is littered with skulls, horns and pelts at various stages of drying. We must sharpen, shave and salt. So then, what are you, you're gonna, you're gonna make it into a chair, is it? Or? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll use the leather for a Sort of a single-seater couch. And I've got an old one that I've put, bought at an antique shop and recovered the genuine leather. Yeah. Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> 
The pelt is rolled up and covered in salt. It will be left like this for a few days, then folded up and shipped off to a tannery. Jeff works to the side of us, cutting and tearing at the head. Can you tell me what you're doing there, Jeff? Oh, I'm just peeling the skin off the skull so that we can boil the skull up. Yeah. So it's just a matter of getting the head skin off the skull. And, and then um, will the will the skin for the skull be used no, again? No, it's thrown away. It's just going to be what they call a European skull, which is just the beer skull on the wall. Oh, right. And yeah. is that the more popular style? or? Oh, for Europeans it is, but yeah. for not for Americans. A lot of Americans would prefer to have, a, have the head mounted and have a bit of a, a games room where they have all their stuff. So, yeah, no, it's quite two quite distinctly different ways of treating the trophies. Boy. These things are so thick in the skin, it's incredible. Everything about them is just big. Does he lose his um, his character? Like, I mean, I his, his face. Yeah. It does alter. Look at the animal. Yeah. Totally, really. Yep, so it does. Yeah. He's slowly becoming a, a white figure. A white skull. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Even on the face. The skin is still about an inch thick on a water buffalo. It's just probably one of one animal, apart from probably an elephant and a rhino, that's probably got one of the thickest skins. A normal an animal skin on the skull like this would be probably only four mils thick. Yes. If you look at that, that would have to be at least 20 mils, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just unbelievably thick. The fire crackles and gently spits. The flame grows and the bath of water begins to boil, waiting for the head. Nice first, Sophie. Yeah. Yeah. She's in. And it'll just boil flat out till tomorrow night. Mm. Hit it with a pressure washer. Mm -hmm blow all the meat so it comes out nice and white and uh, yeah then throw it straight in the hydrogen peroxide yeah. and that goes soaks into the bone and takes all of the fat out of it and burns all the rest of the meat down to jello give it another hit with a pressure washer and it takes every last scrap out put it in the sun to dry and it's sterile like yeah. no smell whatsoever it just smells like nothing you know yeah it's that white yep. white pure The men are happy. The work is over. The skull now sterile, cold and smooth to touch. He is nude now, where he was naked before. To be naked is to be seen as yourself, as he was in the wild. But now, consigned only to memory, his face gone, he is nude, always on display, yet never. Like a model from a classical painting, his gaze not to be returned. $10,000 can buy a small car or a big bull. The fee paid, 
the hunters satisfied. The men begin to pack up camp. Tents dismantled, bolts drawn in. A small cement shack remains, rusty sheets on its roof. The rains are coming. It'll all be underwater in two weeks. I'm leaving now. Len takes me aside. His Australia has been only this kill. He invites me to South Africa to shoot a lion on his game farm. I don't know what to say. On Hunting by John Connell. It originally aired on Radio I on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. And now to a hunt of a completely different kind, the hunt for love. We've all been there. But who among us has been able to make so clean a shot and so fast a kill? Rob McKinley Myers tells his story. I'd known Nancy for three weeks when she came to my 21st birthday party in a hotel room in Madrid. She was cute and funny and one of the few American girls in Spain who didn't wear makeup. We stayed up talking long after our friends had all left or gone to sleep. I was staring at the wall, trying to get up the nerve to make a move, when I noticed that Nancy had fallen asleep too. I turned off the light, assuming I'd missed my chance, but the sound of the clicking lamp woke her up, and it was there, in the complete darkness, that we finally kissed. It seemed like a magical beginning, but Nancy regretted the whole thing. You were so uncertain about everything and so willing to do whatever other people wanted. It was like, I just didn't feel like I knew you at all. You seemed really nice, but I didn't have any idea that you actually had a personality. You know, wherever you guys want to go, what are you drinking? What should I order? Where should we go? I'll go too. There's not much excitement in that. Nancy told me she didn't want to get involved, and I didn't put up much of a fight. I'd never believed I could actually change a girl's mind if she wasn't interested in me. But something about that night in the dark with Nancy was hard to let go of. All this happened right before Valentine's Day, so I used that as an excuse to write Nancy a letter. Dear Nancy, well, this is the third letter I've started to you since we left Madrid. I'm back in Granada today, and you probably are I spent the first few pages of this supposed love letter going on and on about myself, my history, and my idea that you can never really know the truth about anything. I guess I was confused. I didn't think I was in love. But when I finally got around to addressing Nancy in the letter, I found myself creating a future for us that I hadn't consciously considered until I was writing about it. So the thing is, Nancy, the thing that I really want is to kiss you again. I understand all of your hesitations, but I don't have any good reasons or arguments for you other than the fact that that night with you, in the dark, was one of the most comfortable, wonderful experiences, for lack of any good word, I've ever had with anyone. So all I can assure you of is that right now, at 7.03 p.m. on Sunday the 16th of February, 
I want this thing, whatever it is. Of course, we'll still be friends if that isn't what you want. I just didn't want you to have this, to make this This was the greatest letter anyone had ever written to me. It was like a declaration of love. It was a serenade outside my window. But I think that if I, I mean, if I just said to you, I really don't want to let you go and I don't want to just be your friend. Mm-hmm. Don't you think we would have wound up exactly where we are without this letter? I mean, I think you could have said those things to me, but the question is, would you have said those things to me? And if I would have been there with you, would I really have responded appropriately? Whereas I read that letter in my room alone, had the chance to think about how I wanted to respond to it. I think because it was a letter, and I think because it was that letter, that's why I dated you in Spain. Nancy kissed me again about 12 hours after I gave her that letter. And we've been together now for 11 years, married for almost eight But it's hard for me to believe that something I wrote when I was 21 could have set the course for the rest of my life. To me, love is irrational, and I don't believe you can persuade someone to love you with a mere letter. I think they just love you or they don't. Nancy says I'm missing the point. They either love you or they don't. They have a crush on you or they don't. What you are persuading them to is to commit to it and to do something about it. Writing me that letter didn't make me want to kiss you. I already wanted to kiss you. It just made me kiss you. A Life-Changing Letter, produced by Rob McKinley Myers. If you're hunting for something to do, look no further. Come out for a special evening of celebration. Food, music, fabulous audio. It's the Third Coast Awards Ceremony at the Arts Club of Chicago on Friday, October 23rd at 7.30. Meet the makers of this year's best radio. For more information and for tickets, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. ReSound is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Carly Nix is our trusty intern. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear thousands of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts and sponsorship from Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and it was founded by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>